session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. Before we get started, I want to announce the book of the week for this week again. It is Originals by Adam Grant. Originals, How Nonconformists Move the World. I'll be talking about that book on my show Monday night at 8 p.m. But let's go to a caller now. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Uh, hello, Dr. Fahid. Hi. Hi, thanks for calling. Uh, sure, thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Uh, Dr. Hulakwi, I'm calling regarding uh, your opinion for the public and private school. Mm-hmm. Um, before I get to know a lot about uh, your father, I uh, basically, um, just four five years ago, I was introduced to his programs, and uh, I enjoy it a lot. Okay. Um, before I go further with that, I wanted to let you know that I have two children. One is age 12, is a girl, and a boy who is uh, nine years old. And uh, um, since I had them, even though I was uh, working in academia and research, I wanted to stay home with them, and uh, I... Uh, Sorry, there's some so there's some sound coming from your phone, like a clicking sound. Yeah, it's coming every few seconds. I don't know. It's nothing from our end, so I don't know if we're on speaker. Please take it off speaker. Uh, it's not on the speaker, sir. Um, okay. It's not. Okay, I don't know what it is, but it's coming every, like, five seconds. It's a loud oh, clicking okay. noise. Yes. Let me see if I can change my position and see Maybe. if it gets better. Is it, that better now? It's gone away. It didn't come back yet, the clicking sound at least. The sound's still not very clear, but the clicking has gone away, which is a little bit better. So let, let's try now. So you said you have a 9-year-old and a 12-year-old, and uh, yes. you were working in academia, uh, but you wanted to stay home with them uh, as much yes. as possible. Okay, go ahead. Yes, correct. And then uh, they went to school. Uh, and I registered them in a private school, which was in a city that uh, basically had a very good private schooling. And everything went well, and everything was fine. However, uh, since I got to know a program from Dr. Hulakui, he always was recommending that kids should go to a public school if it's possible. Uh, uh, and I was thinking of perhaps later on as they kind of get past their kind of elementary school, I could take them to public school. However, we had to move to the area that's uh, like about 300 miles from our original place uh, because my mom was sick and I wanted to help the family regarding that. Um, before I moved, three years before that, we brought the kids to this area because their grandmother was living here and other family members, and they went to summer camps in public schools. 
a school that we were thinking they should go later on when we move. Mm -hmm. And uh, we didn't see anything uh, very uh, noticeable that is like a deterrent for, for them to go to public school. But that was a summer camp. Mm -hmm. However, since a year ago that we moved to this area permanently at this time, which is about um, east part of the U.S., uh, my kids are start going into um, this public school, which is from a very good neighborhood. Okay. However, I'm noticing that there has been some flaws there that we could not recognize that. Um, first of all, even though this area is a very good uh, socioeconomic kind of region, that they go into the school, uh, because of the district, they are mixing that with the low-income um, element, other school, that, uh, so the kids are not basically just from that neighborhood. They are bringing some other school into it that were not the same ranch. That was the first thing. And that's not really the issue. The issue is these kids are coming brought up different way. They are, um, they are not as disciplined. They are not as uh, academically driven. Uh, they are not also, uh, they use a lot of foul, uh, foul language. Um, uh, and uh, mm -hmm. also the school itself put a lot of pressure on the kids, like making them busy on weekend with the homework, with the severe competition that's just constantly changing kids from one class to the other, the way they do it. They just keep putting assessment tests. So some goes into regular level, they go to advanced, and the other parts go to way in advanced. Mm -hmm. um, my kids are pretty good in that area. I mean, they are keep moving. But that mainly became their kind of focus in instead of any relationship that they can develop. And I know that's the age that's very important for them. Yeah. So have good friends and being able to relate to others. With the kids that they go, they don't feel like they really can relate because, as I said, they have some fall language and some other issues. And also these weekends that all, most of the time, especially for my daughter who is in seventh grade, um, most of the time they're busy with projects. They don't have time in a school and even she finds time to spend in like clubs and things like that. Um, she can, it's just not the type of kids that uh, she can really uh, be as much that um, we like to. That you like uh, to or that she likes to? Well, uh, I should say that we don't approve of that. Okay. That's what I should say. That's different, And I yes. said the reason for that. I okay. mean, kids at this age talking about certain languages and certain things. Yeah, they're going to talk uh, about these things. I mean, another thing to keep in mind is when before you moved here, your kids were younger. As they get older, they're going to get exposed to more of these things at private school or public school. You know, kids at private school are talking about drugs and sex and things once they get to middle school. It's not something mm -hmm. that only happens in uh, the public schools and doesn't happen in private schools. So your daughter who's going until, you said, I think, seventh grade? Yes. Okay, in seventh she grade kids? She started in sixth grade. Yeah. She started in okay, but, grade. you know, yeah, sixth, yeah, seventh yeah. grade kids are going to start talking about their, they wonder about sex and these things. And it's from where I've seen and families I've worked with, you see it in private schools as well. So it's not something that only public schools have. Now, when your daughter was in fourth grade, yeah, most of the kids weren't talking about these things no matter what school you sent her to. And now you're hearing more about those things. And so for me, actually, um, 
diversity is a good thing for them to be exposed to, and it's not a bad thing for them to have kids in their school that are maybe from different neighborhoods. I don't actually think that's bad. I would actually look at that more of a plus. Now, the amount of work and those things, I don't like that in general. I see that in schools here in the United States. They're giving too much homework and focusing too much on testing, and I think that is a problem. I see it in private schools too, but um, it may be in public schools that there might be more assessments that they have to give because of the state or whatever. I'm not sure. So that I understand. I don't like that they get so immersed in work because you're right. This is a time that, uh, or in general, the work and the learning is good, but they need the social aspect also. But something you just said is that you're interfering with part of the social aspect because maybe people that your daughter wants to spend time with, you're saying she can't or she shouldn't or you don't approve. So you have to be aware of how you're interfering with her social life. Yes. Dr. Holakwi, the other thing as you brought it, that you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, kids changes as the age go. But my son, uh, because my daughter, when she was in like second grade, third grade, she was in that private school. And now I see my son that's about this age now, nine years old, that's uh, going to public school right now or mm-hmm. last year, I see that even the languages they're using in this classroom, the type of, you know, environment they're in. I mean, I'm even comparing the same age group. Mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. One was in private school and one is now in uh, public school. Now, the situation is we are financially capable of, you know, go back to uh, private school. However, where we are uh, residing right now is about two times more than what the private school was in a previous city that we were living. Um, And I'm just wondering, am I just reacting too much into that? Am I supposed to uh, just wait, see how things turn out to be? And the other thing is, even I changed the school now. I mean, am I doing something more harmful? Like, perhaps I shouldn't even try to change the school when she was, uh, you know, 10 years old, 11 years old. So that's kind of like put me in doubt of my future steps that I should take. Well, I mean, the the past, we don't, we can't obviously change that. So, you know, should you have changed it or not, I'm not going to say for sure it was good or bad. But looking forward, I think one very important thing for me is that you talk to the kids about this. So it's not just uh, before you do anything, if you want to do anything. So you don't just switch their schools. Because parents, I think they think, where the kids go to school is only their decision. And the kids are the ones that are there. They can tell you if they like it, if they're happy, if they've made friends, because switching schools always, but especially in the middle of the year, is difficult, right? Socially, you're just talking about the social side. It's very difficult to go into a new school and and try to make friends or try to uh, adapt to the new school. So I would make sure you talk to them even more than you're talking to me about my advice, because if they're very happy there, I'm okay with them being exposed to some things that maybe you don't love. I think that's okay if there, you know, there is some maybe bad language. You're going to see that at schools almost everywhere you go. Um, and as they get older, things like drugs and alcohol will become part of the culture of the schools. Wherever you go in private schools, sometimes they just have access to more expensive drugs because they have more money. So it's not that there's no drugs at private schools. So these things are going to be out there. Now, I don't know exactly the school that they're in and what's going on, but when you tell me there's bad words and there's people talking about things I don't like, that to me is not reason to change the school from what I'm hearing. Now, I don't know when you say your daughter 
and she maybe wants to spend time with people, but you say you don't approve of those people. No, I basically like for example, I see um, like the kids that uh, um, the kids that she has talked about, the kids that she was uh, friend like last year. I hear that uh, she talks about certain things that is like morally even is wrong. Uh, and they are not like these, like few of them. I'm not saying that they're from. See, what happened is mainly when you come to these big cities, most of the parents working and most of these kids being brought up by nannies not with their, you know, own parents who watch for what they are doing. And these kids, even though are supposedly in a good neighborhood and with a good social economy uh, kind of a status, still you don't see those value systems from a smaller cities. Or you see that they are talking about cheating or doing, for example, copy homework or doing... Some that's, other happening, that's happening everywhere. Everywhere, yeah. Even but universities, I, kids I are cheating. Sure. Yeah. I can for sure, Dr. Okui says that because of my experience these past five years mm-hmm. with my daughter in a private school, the parents are watching more. They are more in touch with the school. Here, I don't see as much. And one of the reasons is because both parents are working. Okay. There's nothing wrong with that um, at certain age of the kids. But I could see, for example, more involvement of the parents. Uh, in the schooling, as far as, like, watching how things are, uh, you know, who are the people around your kids or things like that, for certain age. I'm right now more concerned for my younger son than for my daughter because I feel like at least now she knows bad and good enough, Mm -hmm. supposedly, that she can make a choice. But for my son, who is nine years old, uh, I'm concerned more about him. And he's also being categorized as a highly sensitive kid that I'm sure that you know that the type of behavior they mm-hmm. have, like they're very overstimulated with small things. Yeah. And yes. Okay. Um, so right now, as, as far as their age group, he's, she went to middle school and he's in elementary school and they're never going to be in the same schooling because he just keep cutting them from middle school to high school and they never catch up with things. Well, eventually they will in high school. Uh, well, actually, they're like uh, kind of like in high school. Yeah, by yeah. the time that she's almost graduated. Sure, okay. Just so it might there. be a while. Okay. Yes, but th- that's my concern. And I'm thinking if I pick him right now from where he is and put him in uh, private schools, that might be, as you said, there is this kind of issues goes everywhere whether he is going to be too much change, and if I tell him because of his character of highly sensitive kids, he's not that the clicking The clicking has come back, unfortunately. I don't know what it is. It's very strange. It sounds like there's aliens, like, tapping your phone or something. A very weird clicking sound keeps coming. I'm again changing my Yeah, maybe wherever you were before was good. Now, you know... Your your son might be highly sensitive, but I also feel that you're being highly sensitive too to every small thing that's going on. That okay. I don't. I'm not so worried that you know you, you pay. You see how he's doing, and he maybe is having a harder time. One thing you also have to be aware of is if you take one of them to private school, maybe your daughter also feels like why does he get to go to private school or why do you pay for his school and you don't pay for mine? So there's that we have to be aware of that differential treatment, which doesn't mean it might not be fair or okay, but you have to be aware of that. A possibility, but to me, I, I'm, I'm not so 
I think your son, you're, he's going to have challenges just because you're saying he's highly sensitive. So wherever you put him, he might have challenges. And we want to be aware of that and, and be sensitive to his sensitivity. So I'm not saying just ignore it and say, oh, he's sensitive. Whatever he goes through is okay. You want to monitor him, see how he's doing. Um, but I'm not hearing anything to me that really worries me about this school. You know, private schools, lots of the parents, both of them are working too, and they are with the nanny. Or even if they have, you know, it's, I don't want to generalize, but a lot of kids are raised in nannies, and they're picking up the kids at a private school too. So I, I don't see it as mm -hmm. a public versus private, and I don't see that as like the only reason to decide where to send your kids. Does, okay. how, does your, how does your son say he likes the school? He says everything is okay, but I'm, I'm guessing that he's just not prone to any changes, basically. So when we wanted to move, he didn't want to move. Okay. When, if I tell him now to move because of his, I don't know, he really can really say that that's, uh, that's the best place. He doesn't have any trouble in the school. Okay. Everybody seems like comfortable with him. He's comfortable. The ratio of teacher and students is it's totally different in public schools, 30 to 1 versus 7 to 1 than you are yeah. in a That's something I think is school. good about a private school, I think, getting that. But, yeah. But if it yeah. seems like he's doing okay and he's fine, yes. I wouldn't, you know, you say he's achieving well. Um, I would also, maybe one thing you have to be aware of is, you know, you're saying your kids are so focused on the academics. You have to focus on how much you guys are focusing on academics and not allowing them to focus more on the social. So the pressure might be coming partially from you guys as the parents, putting them on the kids, even if you're not aware of it. And it seems like you're, a, you're, you're in education and academia, and maybe there's a pressure they feel to achieve something. But I would put that on you guys to make sure they don't feel the pressure as much as it is on them or the school. And in a public school, usually it's less pressure or it's a different kind of pressure. So to me, if they're okay... To me, that's okay, and your kids are going to get exposed to lots of things, and um, kids around them will be having sex and will be involved with drugs, alcohol in their school. This is just every school, especially middle school, but even more so high school, everyone I've encountered has those things going on. And even the ones you went to yourself had them, and the ones I went to had them. It's just part of life and society and what they're going to go through. So to me, you know, nothing you're saying, if the kids are happy, the kids seem okay, I would say that's fine. And I would also be very mindful, again, something you said earlier of, well, we don't really approve of some of the friends they want to make. For example, your daughter, that to me is you're maybe trying to control too much what's going on in her life. And you have to give her that space. You're saying, you know, she knows right and wrong. And you have to give her some of that space to figure out right and wrong for herself, especially who she chooses to be chooses to be friends with um yes that's correct but then could i ask you if you have to basically in a in a way just making that when the parents are supposed to choose one versus the other um public versus the private or this school versus the other you're saying that all the decisions should be made by a child not all but they should definitely have a big part in it even in preschool i mean you know, I think parents, like, they go and they investigate the preschools, but if the kid goes there and feels uncomfortable, that to me is better than it was highly ranked on Yelp or something, you know what I mean, or has a lot of recommendations. If the kid doesn't feel comfortable somewhere, their experience is more important to me than how, uh, you know, it's reviewed or judged by other people or the ranking. If they're not happy, that's really big, and if they're happy somewhere, that to me is much more important 
then, you know, those kinds of things. So to me, now I'm not saying only, so let your kids make all the decision, but when it comes to something like their school, they should be a big part of making that decision, especially if everything seems okay. If there's something you have to protect them from some danger that the kid is not aware of or doesn't understand, yes, as a parent, you come in and you have to make those decisions. But if your kid is doing well academically, seems to be doing well socially, likes the school, feels okay, then I don't see a reason to change a school when everything seems okay. That's what I mean is if your kids, if you told me my son's really miserable, then I'm like, okay, let's look at the options. That's why what he experiences matters. But if he's okay and you're just not sure if there's a better option out there, uh, you know, I, I don't know. To me, that's wor- it's maybe putting too much into try to find the best, best, best when, you know, it's kind of like when you get married, you find someone is there a better person in the world for you? Probably, but sometimes you have to just, you're with that person and now you get married. So when your kids are at a school, can you try every school in the district and find a better match? Maybe. But to me, if they're happy where they are and they're enjoying it and it's going all right, then let's let them stay there. And maybe some of these things are more your issues than the kids' issues. And the kids being exposed to people from different socioeconomic status and things like that, I actually don't see that as a negative. I think that could be a good thing. And again, make sure you're not getting in the way of their friendships or trying to prove who they can or cannot be friends with, because that's going to interfere well, uh, with their friends. Yes, I don't, I don't want to sound like uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of a controlling, but then my daughter comes and tells me that my friends say that, you know, you have to have children by age of 20, and that's my mom did, and I'm planning to do that. And for my, and you can see the rate of uh, like even graduation for kids in public school is 80 or 86 percent, which in uh, you know private school you see 100 percent. Most of these uh, you know yeah. schools claim that they're 100 percent graduate. Yeah, because they won't they, they won't let you not. College. Yeah, they won't let you not graduate. Also at the at a private school. I mean, you're paying them, so people kids sometimes there's great inflation, and the parents expect that we're paying you. So let our kids. You know, all that. But, yeah, it's going to be different. I'm not saying... And those things, you you know, have conversations with her about those things. And I do. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's, that's. I'm just hoping that, uh, you know, she can find uh, people who are not like that. Okay. But, unfortunately, because of the late time that she came, uh, you know, kind of like the friendship almost being kind of mended uh, for others. And then what... You know, it's, it's, sometimes it's more difficult to okay. make the right friends. It might be, kind of and you know, you sure. And she should also be involved in other things like sports or clubs or camps, and she can make other friends and have a diverse group of friends that are have differing kind of values, and that's fine. I would that's just encourage her to do those things. I wouldn't get so scared that she has a few friends that are saying some things like this, and so it's going to make her become one thing or the other. You want to see who she's friends with. I understand. I'm not saying have no involvement, don't care at all. But I wouldn't say because of this, I have to now move her school so she gets away from these kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And, then, and the, the last thing that I wanted to mention is basically when, um, when Dr. Holakui, your father, mentioned mm-hmm. about uh, that basically if I could say five uh, you know, words to to uh, for the kids at this age is just buy a good friend for them. Yeah. Um, and I'm 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 guessing that the friend that uh, your father mentioning is not something that basically to have the best friend is basically to be socially active because the way I understood from just you mentioned that even she's friends 
with some people in clubs and some friends in some other sports and different mm-hmm. things, which is she's involved. She's really involved in a team sport. Yeah. And that's good enough. She doesn't have to have the best friends. Exactly. Kind of so, I mean, those, that's, yes, I would say keep her involved in lots of different things. She'll make lots of different friends and will gravitate more to the friends that are more like her anyway. So give her those opportunities to figure it out. But it doesn't mean you have to, you know, look at every friend and evaluate them for how good they are for her or what you think is how they're going to affect her. I wouldn't get that involved, in my opinion, of, you know, doing a background check on every friend she has. But you can just be aware of who she's being friends with and keep her involved in things that she likes, and she'll make a a variety of friends in different ways. But I I wouldn't, to me, switching her school because of that doesn't seem like the right idea at this time. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I really appreciate your opinion. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for your call. Have a good day. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Studio number 3104410555. So last week we had a question about why people are not getting married or someone asked that question and I talked about the fear of intimacy that's playing a big part in that in my opinion and how people are comfortable in their lives and so they're choosing not to risk giving themselves what they really want out of that fear and just staying comfortable. And so today I wanted to talk more about this fear in general and how fear holds us back. And the message I want to send home is don't let the fear win. Don't let your fear win in your life. By that I mean don't let the fear you have of whatever it is, failure, intimacy, taking a risk, um, being made fun of for trying something and it not working out, Uh, wasting time if you feel like that's what it might be when you try something new. Whatever it might be, don't let the fear win. Now, anyone who's listened to my show knows that I'm very big on listening to your feelings and being in touch with your feelings. So maybe it seems paradoxical to say in this way, don't listen to your fear. But that's not what I'm trying to say. What I mean is get in touch with that fear, understand what you're feeling, because until you understand what the fear is and why you might be feeling that way, it's going to be difficult for you to overcome it. And you have to understand what you're doing to know how to change it. So going back to the example of fear of a relationship, fear of intimacy, you might just think, oh, I'm busy with life or I don't care that much about a relationship or who cares about getting married. It's an old thing. I don't want to be with anyone anyway. And go on with your life. And that might be true. But if really you have a fear of intimacy, if you're not in touch with that, you won't realize that actually it's not that you don't want to get married or to be close with someone. It's that you're afraid of getting close to someone. So we have to be in touch with the emotion and recognize, okay, it's actually that I'm afraid to get hurt. I'm afraid that I'm going to get close to someone and they're going to break up with me or cheat on me or do this. Or I'm afraid that if I get close to someone and they see who I truly am, they're going to leave me when they see who I am because deep down I feel like I'm unlovable. 
And now, as you can imagine, most people don't want to recognize these feelings or get in touch with them because they don't feel very good. But we have to recognize the reality and see that very often it's not that we don't want something. It's that we're afraid of something. We're afraid of that thing that we want. Very often our greatest fear and our greatest wish are two sides of the same coin. So you really want to be close with someone and it feels so good. It's such a wish of yours, a desire to be so close to someone. But at the same time, you're terribly or terrified of it. You're so scared of it too, of what's going to happen. I can get hurt. They're two sides of the same coin and we have to recognize that. Or you might be in your career and you might say you're okay with what your job is, but you're really wanting something much more. But you're afraid of failure, afraid of what if I'm not good enough, afraid of what if I take this leap and I don't make it, or I try to change my career or change my job and I don't make it. And so it's not that you're actually happy with what you have, it's that you're afraid of risking, you're afraid of trying to give yourself what you want. So this is why I say don't let the fear win. And fear is basically, uh, fear and anxiety are essentially these two ingredients that help keep us in our comfort zone. And the comfort zone is really the most dangerous place we can be in, which sounds funny because comfort zone means you're in a safe place. But by dangerous, I mean that it will lead to you living a life that makes you unhappy, unsatisfied, and unfulfilled. If you just stay comfortable, you are never going to achieve what you want to achieve, and you're never going to have in your life what you really want to have. Comfort means I'm not going to try that hard. If we look at your physical body, if you always stay comfortable, you're never going to get stronger. You're never going to build endurance. You're never going to uh, get in better shape or become healthier. You have to get a little uncomfortable or else it doesn't happen. If you're in a relationship, you have to get uncomfortable. You have to have conversations that are difficult to have. You're going to have to share feelings that maybe you'd rather not share or feel uncomfortable to you. You're going to have to express vulnerabilities to your partner that maybe make you afraid you're going to look weak and they won't love you anymore. But you have to take that risk in order to get closer to someone to really have an intimate relationship. So we have to look at our lives and see all the ways that we are being comfortable. And unfortunately, we are so good at convincing ourselves to not do something when we're scared of it. You know, oh, you know, who wants to enter a relationship anyway? A lot of people get divorced or cheated on, so what's the point anyway? Or, oh, even if I get another job, who cares? You know, I don't care that much about money anyway, so I don't need to get a new job. I'm happy where I am. We'll convince ourselves that it's actually out of how noble we are and how uh, we're so not superficial and into material things that that's why I'm not changing my job. When actually, no, it's not that's the reason. It's actually you're afraid to try to get that job that you want. And you're not even afraid of the money, but you're afraid of risking failure. So you can tell yourself it's because you're such a good person that you're happy with what you have. And that's something that a lot of people tell themselves. I'm actually very simple and easygoing, and that's why I'm okay not getting more in my life. I don't need to have more. And that's something we're telling ourselves a lie to keep ourselves safe and comfortable. We don't want to risk. So I've heard people come up with every excuse you can think of. Well, you know, it's better to start something in a new year. So I know I could start promoting my business now, but let me wait till 2019, January. That's going to be a good time to really get things going. Or you know what? I'm not that good at this yet, so I have to still practice this. And, and, and then when I do that, then I'll go ahead. 
or okay, I'll start dating. You know, I want to wait till Valentine's Day passes because I don't want to date someone before Valentine's Day. Then it's weird. What are we going to do on Valentine's Day? So let me wait till after. I'm going to wait till March. Well, you know, now March, it's Persian New Year, and then it's kind of uncomfortable. What are you going to do if you know someone at Persian New Year? Do you go to their families? They come to your family. So let's wait till after. So we can always wait. Then we have to pay our taxes in April, and then it's going to be summer, and it's too hot to date someone, and you'll find a way to keep pushing it back till 2020. And then, oh, well, it's an election year. Let me wait till the election is over and we elect a new president to see if I want to stay in this country anyway. So you can always find a way to get out of doing something that scares you a little bit. Always. We're very good at it. And as a therapist, I get to hear people express these reasons in lots of different ways. And the book I talked about Monday night uh, by Jonathan Haidt, The Righteous Mind, was in a way about this, that we first feel something about a situation, whether it's a moral issue, a political issue, and then we come up with reasons afterwards. And that's what we're doing. We're afraid to take a step, and because of that, we want to go away from it, and then we come up with reasons to justify why we shouldn't do it. But it's not actually that the reasons are why we're doing it. And I want you to recognize that it's the fear that's making the decision. And that's why I'm saying don't let the fear win. I understand it's scary to do these things. And we also have to understand that if we're waiting to the, for the fear to become zero, you're never going to do it. If you're waiting for the fear of being in a relationship to be absolutely zero, that you feel no anxiety about it, you're never going to do it. If you're waiting for the anxiety of going for a new job to become zero, that's never going to happen either. You're always going to be afraid to some degree, but you have to decide that it's worth doing it anyway. And we know that when we talk about being brave or having courage, it's not about not being afraid. It's not about not being scared. Heroes aren't people that don't feel fear. They're people that felt afraid but did it anyway because they knew what they had to do was more important than the fear. So when it comes to your own life, you deserve to have more. You deserve to have better. But it's only going to be that way if you recognize, hey, I have this fear, but I'm not going to listen to the fear and let it win. I recognize the fear. I want to understand where it's coming from so I can understand how to conquer it, how I can overcome that fear. But I'm going to have to go forward anyway. Even I've talked to people about their wedding days. And many people will say, I was very confident in marrying my husband or marrying my wife, but I can't say I was 100% sure. There was still a little bit of doubt of, you don't know what's going to happen. So if you're waiting for 100% comfort in making a decision or 100% of not having fear, you're never going to do it. So my advice today is don't let the fear win. Don't let fear decide your life. Let yourself give to yourself the life you want to live. Overcome those fears. Recognize that it's going to be there anyway, but you'll go forward. Recognize that you're still going to be scared, but you can go and take that next step. And even the book of the week, Originals by Adam Grant, talks about this a little bit. So looking forward to talking more about that uh, Monday night's show. But again, don't let the fear win. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dawakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. During the commercial break, got a question, um, but they won't be coming on the air, but the question was about focus and This is an issue that many people have problems with or have problems with at different times. And many things can contribute to having issues related to focus. And of course, it depends on the degree, 
we're talking about because no one's going to be perfectly focused and that's something we have to accept even uh, when i talked about the book how we learn last week i think it was um, we see that actually sometimes having breaks and distractions can be actually very good so we have this idea that if i'm being productive i have to be working 100 percent of the time on the task and that's the only way i'm being a good hard worker but we see that that's not the case and not the best way to either learn or even be creative or come up with solutions to things. So we have to sometimes break these myths and misconceptions we have of what it means to be focused, that you should never daydream or never get distracted or never take a break. Even sometimes those breaks are very good for us. And in that book, How We Learn by, gosh, was it Benedict Carey? I can't remember exactly his name. Um, but the idea was that sometimes those breaks are very good. He actually talked about a story where he was working at his desk and his daughter had come to see him work. And he was, I think he's a journalist and he thought he was working for many hours straight, but then his daughter kind of kept a log of everything he was doing and saw that he got distracted many times. He went up and talked to a colleague. He took a break and looked at something on his phone or he did various things. And he was so surprised because he thought he was working straight for a while, but we see that actually that's really not reasonable or realistic and we don't need to be that way. So one thing we have to recognize is we don't need to be perfectly focused or that's not even healthy or right. That's on one side. But of course, sometimes we can become way too distracted where we are not able to focus on tasks or um, focus on our social interactions or be in the moment. And that can, of course, be an issue. Being mindful, we know, is one of the biggest signs of mental health is if we can stay in the moment and be mindful, something that most of us have a very difficult time with. So we want to be able to have that. Uh, and what becomes difficult about something like focus and concentration when we look at it uh, from a psychological perspective is lots of different psychological disorders or issues can give you issues with concentration. So a lot of times someone who becomes depressed, they think, oh, I have ADHD now because I can't focus on anything. But the truth is that depression can lead to issues related to focus and attention, uh, as can anxiety. Because if you're constantly preoccupied thinking, worrying, being anxious about things, of course you're not going to be able to be in the moment. And we've all been there before, where let's say you're really worried about a test result and someone's talking to you and you can't even listen to what they're saying because you're thinking about that thing that you're worried about. So, of course, anxiety also leads to issues related to um, focus and concentration. And of course, ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder will lead to, that's the hallmark symptom is having issues with concentration and focus. So of course that can lead to that too. So there's all these different ways or things that can contribute to issues related to focus and concentration. Now, not every one of us that's going to struggle with focus or concentration is going to have a diagnosable disorder. So we know that most of us struggle with it anyway. It doesn't have to be something that can be diagnosed. We want to look at what might be leading to that. And actually related to um, the social interactions, something that you see a lot is people will say, I'm so bad with names. I don't remember names. And usually it's not that you're bad at learning things, like you actually would be bad at learning the names, but it's that when you were meeting people and getting their names, you never really heard them the first time because you were either anxious about how you were presenting yourself or what they were thinking of you or you were distracted in some way. So a lot of times when we don't learn certain things or we don't remember things, it's not so much that we never 
we, we're having a hard time remembering it. So we actually never really learned it or stored it in the first place. So you see this a lot with people who have social anxiety when they're meeting a group of people and introducing themselves. They're so preoccupied with how they're saying hello. How do they look? How's the person looking at them? Are they judging them? Are they thinking this, that, or the other? That they don't even hear the name that the person said. And so that's actually why one of the things you can do to help yourself with that is that when someone says their name, you repeat it to them out loud in a way that you make sure you heard it. So they say, hi, I'm Farid. And they say, hi, I'm Jim. Oh, hi, Jim. It's nice to meet you. Or especially if their name has a difficult spelling, you can ask them to spell it. So if they say, oh, my name is Ghazole, you say, oh, how do you spell that? Oh, G-H-A's. Okay. And that'll help it stay in your mind a little bit more too. So these things can help us. So you realize that it's not that we're bad with names or I don't know names or I don't learn names. It's that actually you're not learning them because in that moment you're not allowing it to register. It's not being, you're not listening to it. But now coming to this issue of um, not being focused in general. So one overall theme is that we want to try to be more mindful. We want to be more in the moment. And this is an overall type of a thing. But one thing that can help us become more mindful is to meditate. And we can meditate just even a few minutes a day, five minutes, ten minutes, but it can definitely be more. But meditation helps us become more mindful overall. So the exercise itself of meditating is good and can be helpful, but it also allows us to become more mindful in our day-to-day, every-minute interaction. Just like if you exercise, let's say you go to the gym and you run on the treadmill, um, you'll feel good about the exercise, but overall it'll help you when you're walking and just living your life in general. You'll be a little bit stronger. Same thing happens with meditation. The practice itself is good. The exercise is good for your mind, but also it'll help you be more mindful, become more aware of being present and focusing on that or working on that skill. So I talk about this all the time, about how important and how helpful meditation can be for all of us, but I'll mention that again. And you don't have to be a monk and go live in the mountains for six months in silence to meditate. It can be anyone can do it. You just need a few minutes a day, and all of us have a few minutes to help ourselves with our our mental health. So meditation can be very helpful. Now, we also want to look at what might be keeping us from staying focused. Because what a lot of people do is the reason why they don't want to stay in the moment is because they're trying to avoid or distract themselves from what they're feeling or thinking. And one of the biggest culprits in this or what we use to do this is our phones. People wake up and they take their phone before they even think or feel anything. They have a one-minute break between something, they take out their phone. Or I always say it's interesting if you go to a restaurant and if someone arrives before their friend arrives, as soon as they hit the seat, their phone is already out. Or maybe even before they hit their seat, the phone is out and they're looking at stuff. And we know usually it's not that when we look at our phone, it's because we have something to do. We might be looking at our Instagram feed for the 12th time today. And especially now, it gives you that little green check to let you know that you've seen everything, which I think sometimes almost makes you feel bad, like I've seen this 10 times today. But we're usually on there not to look at something or do something specific, but to distract ourselves. Because people don't like to actually feel what they're feeling. People try to avoid what's going on and distract themselves from it. Because oftentimes what we're feeling isn't so good. There could be a sadness there or a loneliness or an anxiety or anger. Or maybe we think about something we don't want to think about it. So we try to distract ourselves. And we have to be aware of that. And this is why 
I always talk about connecting to our feelings because whether or not you want to be connected to, to them, they affect you. Just like if you don't realize your leg is hurting, it's going to make you walk different whether or not you realize the pain is there. It's going to affect you. And with our emotions, the same thing happens. If you are angry at your partner and you don't realize it, you might think, no, I'm okay, I'm not angry, but it's going to come out in the ways you treat them, maybe in a passive-aggressive way. Maybe you'll be more avoidant or distant of them because you don't, because you are angry with them, you're upset, but you don't realize that you're feeling that way. And because of that, you take it out in another way. So we want to be aware of what we're feeling, but also we have to realize that most of us are afraid to really get in touch with what we're feeling because what's there might not feel good. And also because we think we're supposed to always feel good, always be happy. So there's a lot of people that they wake up in the morning, they check their phone. When they're doing something, the music's on, there's something distracting them, then they're around people. Every break they have, they're looking at something, they come home, the TV is on. Even the TV is on to the moment they fall asleep. They might fall asleep with the TV on. Or they're looking at their phone till they can barely keep their eyes open anymore and they pass out. And they might think they're just staying busy or they're multitasking, but oftentimes they don't realize that they're avoiding feeling their feelings. They're afraid to just have some silence to see what's there. And this is why a lot of people avoid meditating. A lot of people say, oh, I tried to meditate, but it was so boring. Or I tried to meditate, it was too hard. Or I tried to meditate and it's stupid, it's not for me. And I'm not going to say that meditation is for every single person. Everyone should do it, although I think they should. But I think what's important to keep in mind is that if you're not liking the process of meditation, you want to always look at why. Because very often the reason why is that when you start to silence everything else and focus in on what you're feeling and what you're thinking and what you're experiencing, you'll get in touch with some things that might not be so pleasant. So this is also something that people, uh, a myth about meditation is that if you meditate, you just get in touch with all this peaceful, positive, good feelings. And overall, people do tend to achieve that, but you have to be ready that when you start to meditate, you actually start to get in touch with some feelings that aren't so pleasant too an anger that was there that you didn't realize, or a deep sadness or loneliness that you maybe have been trying to avoid. Sometimes people, when they meditate for a long period of time, they might start crying. Maybe at first they don't even know why, but there's a pain or sadness that's there. And that's something I see in therapy all the time, or just when I interact with people, that everyone you see, everyone you know, has so much unfelt pain and sadness. There's so much there that they haven't been able to really get in touch with, that they haven't felt comfortable to express or to share with someone, and it's there. So when we get quiet and we really listen into that voice within ourselves or that feeling within ourselves, very often there is a lot of pain. And it's important for us to get in touch with that pain because when we don't, it still is going to affect our life. And even going back to what I was just talking about, sometimes this is where those fears come in. We don't recognize the pains we felt in our relationships, maybe as a child or in our romantic relationships as we got older and how deep they hurt us. And because those wounds are still so open, we're afraid to go out again and get close to someone else because those wounds are still open. It's too scary. It's too painful. So it's easier to, to avoid that pain, pretend like it's not there, but also avoid getting into a relationship. We avoid everything. But if we face the feeling and see the pain is there and let ourselves express it and maybe heal some of that pain, it'll make us less afraid and feel less wounded 
to then enter the next relationship or to take that next step. So sometimes I've heard people tell me, it seems like you want everyone to cry or you want us to cry. And it's not that I want people to just start crying and to feel bad. It's that I recognize that almost all of us have a lot of deep pain within us that we need to get in touch with and need to express because it's still hurting us and it's still hurting our lives by not allowing ourselves to be the strongest version of ourselves and to then face life head on to do the things we actually want to make us live a more happy and fulfilled life. So I don't want you to be sad because I like to see you sad, but I want everyone to be more in touch with the sadness and the pain that they have. So often when we are distracted or we don't have focus, we're often avoiding some of the feelings in ourselves. So we feel that, you know, I talk about being mindful and how good that is, but there's a comfort that comes with being mindless by not being in the moment, by not feeling anything. We actually can feel a lot more comfortable, but that comfort isn't a true good feeling. It's just trying to numb ourselves or trying to avoid that pain. So if you are having issues with concentration focus, I talked about various things that could be related to that. But especially when it comes to being more mindful and meditating, that's something that's good for all of us. I think everyone should really consider incorporating into their life. Five, ten minutes a day of meditation can go a long way in helping you get in touch with your feelings, understand yourself better, see what's going on. Also can help with focus and concentration in general. It has a lot of benefits. So if you haven't tried it already, I hope you will. And if you've tried it and think it's not for you, maybe you felt it wasn't for you because it was actually kind of difficult, which might be a good thing. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Duakwi. We'll be right back. back a topic that comes up a lot in the questions i get online um, on instagram facebook twitter are about dating something that people have a lot of questions about and very often people ask like what should they look for in another person which is an important question to ask now of course a big part of that is individual you have to choose a person who you are attracted to and who you get along with well so A lot of it is personal, but there are some general things we can look at. To begin with, one thing that people sometimes will say because they want to say, well, love should be about just an emotional thing and you should love each other's, I don't know, soul or spiritually love each other and looks shouldn't matter. And no, that's not true. Looks do matter when it comes to romantic relationships. You absolutely have to make sure you are sexually and physically attracted to your partner that has to be there some people like to or they'll even say i don't want to be shallow or i don't want to be superficial and care about looks but what we're talking about is a relationship that's based partially or the basis of it is this attraction to each other that has to be there that's why it's so important to see each other and so people will meet online and they'll talk for years and they think they're in love but they've never even seen each other and i think They don't really know. They can have a close, they can have a type of relationship, but to really have a romantic relationship, there has to be that physical connection or attraction has to be there. So should you care about looks? Absolutely, you have to. So don't tell yourself it doesn't matter at all. Now, of course, on the other extreme, if you only care about how they look, that's a problem. And some people might get married or choose someone in that way. More than likely a man, but not necessarily. But if you choose someone just based on looks, that's where we have a problem. 
So should it matter? Yes. If it's the only thing that matters to you, that's a problem. It means more you're looking for an object or you're looking for just someone to look good with or to show off, but really it doesn't mean you're looking for that person or want to love them. It should be not just physical. Do you need physical? Yes. And so what I tell people when they say, uh, or if they're choosing someone just based on looks, if it's only based on looks, then I say you can have very nice wedding pictures, but you won't have a very nice marriage. It might look good on a picture on Instagram or whatever else you want to post it, but it's not going to be a good marriage if it's just based on that. So looks do matter, but they definitely should not be the only thing that matters. That's not going to work. But when looking at a characteristic in the person, because people might care about different things, um, age, you should be aware of a range you like, for example, education level, certain types of careers, certain types of characteristics they might have. Those things you want to think about what you want. But for me, what's very important when we look at choosing a partner to be in a long-term romantic relationship with, a very important factor is someone who can think about you first or in some ways equal to themselves. Someone who can put you first and by put you first doesn't mean sacrifice their own life completely or change who they are. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I mean is they can keep you in mind when they're making decisions. On Monday's show, I talked about wearing your partner's ears, meaning that when you talk to your partner, trying to hear how they might hear what you're saying. So if you know they're sensitive about a certain issue, even though you might not have an intention because you know they're sensitive, when you wear your partner's ears, you anticipate in a way how you think they might hear what you're saying because you keep them in mind. So you don't say, you know, if they have an insecurity about their height, you'll be aware of that. And you won't say, well, I'm just going to say whatever I want to say. So you want someone who can keep you in mind in what they're doing. So if they're making a decision in their life, they're going to think about you. It doesn't mean they only make it based on you, but they keep you in mind. And some people are not good at this. It's maybe they don't want to be this way or maybe just not something easy for them, but they're not good at keeping someone else in mind. They can be very self-focused and focus on themselves and what's going on in their life and what they're doing. Sometimes if they have a lot of anxiety about just living life, they can be so consumed with everything they do that they have a hard time thinking of someone else. But some people just have a hard time thinking about someone else. And so even when you think about being in a romantic relationship yourself, I think it's very important to ask yourself, how easy is it for me to do this, to keep someone else in mind? Can I be someone who always is aware of someone else and how my life and my decisions are going to affect them or no? Is that not something I want? It's not something I can do. Because you need to have that where the other person can think about you and everything that happens in their life. And also thinks about you and makes you known they're thinking about you. A lot of times when we think of romance, we think of a big fancy trip somewhere or jewelry or a dozen roses or whatever else it might be. And those things are very good. Big gifts and nice gestures are very good. And depending on your partner, it might be something that makes them feel very loved. But when we look at research on marriage, for example, the Gottmans doing research on uh, marriage over decades now, what we see is that romance is more in the little things. For example, showing your partner that you're thinking of them in a small way. You know they have a big meeting in the afternoon that they're a little bit nervous about. So 20 minutes before the meeting, you send them a text or give them a call to let them know you're thinking of them. Wanted to just send them some love before their 
meeting. Or just saying thinking about you for no reason to show them that they're in your mind. Or in different ways, giving them that feeling and that idea that they're in your mind is something that tends to feel good for most people. We like to feel that way. So you want someone that can show you that they can keep you in mind and everything that they do and whatever their decisions they're making and that they don't forget about you and what they're doing. Now, of course, people are going to be busy and they're going to take care of their lives. So a lot of times you're not necessarily talking all the time. Space is also very important. We need to have that as well, but you want to make sure they keep you in mind. And so this idea of space is very important because I like the analogy of looking at love and especially the passion in love like a fire. You need closeness to create heat, just like in a fire. There has to be closeness to create the heat that makes the fire burn. But the fire also needs space. It needs oxygen in order to breathe or else it suffocates and dies. So if you don't have that space, you're going to suffocate the marriage. And if you don't have any closeness, then there's no heat to keep the fire alive. And finding that balance is not always so easy. Because finding that balance in general is diff difficult, even if both people are exactly on the same page. But what you often see in a relationship is that there might be a time when one partner wants even more closeness, but the other partner wants space. Or two people might have different ideas of how much closeness and space they want in a relationship. So one partner wants to spend a lot of free time together while the other partner actually prefers to have more alone time because he or she has certain things they like to do or they like having their space. And this kind of push-pull can lead to a conflict in a relationship or can lead to a challenge that must be overcome. And there's no one solution that you have to spend exactly this many minutes a day or a week together or you need to have this much space to make it work. It's something that you have to work out together as a couple. And that's what makes it challenging. I wish there was a recipe to say exactly this many minutes is going to be good. Different people are different. And also you're going to feel different at different times. If you're going through a tough time, maybe you'll feel like you need your partner even more. And this is why communication about needs is so important to let your partner know, you know, I'm kind of feeling down or since I'm going through this, it would really mean a lot to me to get to spend some more time with you. Or just if we held each other tonight or went for a walk together, even though I know Usually we go do this or we do that. You can let your partner know. Now, what gets challenging in an ideal world and me talking about a relationship and making it seem very easy, the other partner says, okay, sure, I'll give you exactly what you want, and they feel good about it. But what if that partner feels like, actually, right now I want more space today? I actually had a hard day, but for me, space is something that I want. And so this is what becomes a challenge. And we have to be ready to face these challenges as a couple that, you won't always be on the same page. You won't always want the same things. Or you might always, you might not even deal with the same things in the same way. Someone, when they're stressed, wants to get close. Someone else, when they're stressed, wants space. And that's just two different ways of coping with it. And we have to be ready to deal with these things. But what's important is that we communicate, that we express what we want, what we need, what we're feeling. And that we also, again, keep our partner in mind, that we're aware of them. And to be in a relationship, you at least at times have to do things that maybe you don't exactly want if you were alone. You have to be ready for that. And again, even this is a matter of degree, because if you feel like you're giving too much and not getting enough back, or if you feel like you're sacrificing who you are too much, you're not going to be happy. You're going to feel like your partner is maybe using you or taking advantage of you or not making you feel good. 
And that's where it becomes, again, another challenge where as a couple, you have to balance these things. How do I express what I want? How do I give my partner what they want sometimes, but not necessarily feel like I'm giving up everything of myself? Just like if you're living with someone and you have one TV, you don't get to watch what you want all of the time if, as if you were living alone. Now you have someone else that also wants the TV too, and you have to share it with them. So we have to be aware that we're not going to get to see everything we wanted if we were, as if we were alone. But what you're doing is you're, in a way, trading some of that in order to be with someone. So to be with someone else, we have to be ready that we do have to make some, if you want to call them compromises, even sacrifices. That's part of how it's going to be just to have someone else in our life. When you live alone, you have the bathroom completely to yourself. Your stuff can be wherever it wants. You can use it whenever you want. It's really nice. You get married with someone, now you're sharing a bathroom. and That can lead to little small fights or arguments or resentments that can build up. And that changes things when you get to go take the shower or use the sink or whatever, or they leave a mess and you're a clean person. These are the little things that start to build up and that a couple has to be ready to face. But we have to recognize that when we live with someone else, if we're choosing to be with someone else, we have to be willing to accept that we have some challenges. We have to accept that not everything goes the way we want it to go all the time. And that's why, again, it comes back to, can you keep someone else in mind? Can you be aware of, I like things this way, but I know my partner likes it this way, so sometimes I can do it his way or her way. I can be okay with that. I can make that, if you want to call it sacrifice or compromise, in order to be with them. And ideally, in a loving relationship, because you love each other, you do love yourself and want to give yourself what you want, but you also want to make your partner happy. You want to give them what they want some of the time or a lot of the time. So you'll make those sacrifices for each other. And what you see in a lot of healthy relationships is they're both giving to the other person a lot. They're both giving what the other person wants and they're giving what they want too. There isn't this feeling of, well, you did this two times, so I'm only going to do it two times this week. Or last time it was this way, so this time we have to do it this way. There's this feeling that you're always actually trying to give more than you get. And that's another thing that to me comes from this feeling of, when you can keep someone else in mind, it comes with this mindset of you want to, in a sense, give more than you take in the relationship. Now, of course, some people take this to a very unhealthy degree where they don't take anything or they only want to take care of their partner. That's not what I'm talking about. There should be some give and take, but you should be focused on how much I can give to my partner, not because they gave to me, but because I love him or I love her and I want to give them what I can. I want to give them what I can to make them feel good. So when you look for a partner and also when you look at yourself, try to see if they have this characteristic of keeping someone else in mind. If even to a certain degree they enjoy having someone else in mind and they want to keep someone there. Because if they don't and if they can't, you're very likely going to be unhappy being in a relationship with someone like that. And they probably really don't want to be in a very close, serious relationship. It's not going to be something they desire because... They don't want to have someone else in mind or to affect their life for someone else. So know the things you want in a partner, age, uh, career, maybe education, whatever else it might be. Have those factors in mind. But one characteristic about their personality that I would always look for is can they think about someone else, keep them in mind, and be aware of what that person what might like or dislike in everything they choose to do. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back.
Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello? Hi. Hi, yes, sorry, we couldn't hear you for a second. Go ahead. Hi, Dr. Fali. Thank you so much for having me on the air. My pleasure. Uh, I would like to talk about my uh, son, please. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I have a three-year-old son. Mm-hmm. Um, I only speak with him at home uh, Persian. Mm-hmm. Uh, so want to know that um, he is almost yeah, three years and one month. So want to know, do you think um, uh, should I continue to speak with him Persian or uh, um, just let him to go to, uh, you know, to um, daycare or maybe uh, school, he can learn English. Uh, so I'm basically wondering about his language. I'm calling you from Canada. Okay. Um you know, having kids be bilingual, sometimes they used to think that it was a disadvantage, and there maybe are some, but overall tends to be an advantage. I think, you know, when he starts going to school, if he wants to be aware of him, he might want to practice the English more, too. And we have to be ready that we're making it more challenging for him, that he doesn't know how to speak English when he goes to the daycare. So we have to be aware of that. So learning some of the basics might be a good idea. I wouldn't keep him from knowing anything and throw him into the daycare because he's going to feel very uncomfortable in that way. Has he started yet? He just uh, know um, how to read English alphabet. Okay. At three years old? Okay, that's pretty good. Yes, he knows uh, 26 English alphabet, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't know the words. So he just speaks Persian. Okay. Because I speak only Persian at home. Even if he pick up the word from TV or radio, an English word. So if he wants to, if he wants to try to speak English, I will rep, uh, reply him in, in Persian. Hmm. Okay. And does his? Do you live with? Is his mom also in the house? Yes. Okay. And is she doing the same thing? She's doing the same thing because I want to learn um, Persian. Okay. So your goal is that you want him to learn Persian and to to know it as he gets older. I know I read uh, uh, children can learn uh, English, uh, especially if they are in uh, when they go to school or even in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is better for them um, to teach them at home, uh, so their native language like Persian or other languages. Yeah, so although I mean, I'm not sure uh, yeah. exactly. If Sure. Although native language is a interesting term, because if he was born in Canada, technically he's born. That's really his native language. But you mean more from his parents, which you guys speak Persian. And I, I wouldn't say it's a bad idea, but you have to be aware of. I know you're thinking of it in a long term way, but yeah. so much can and will happen that if you think this is going to make sure he speaks a lot of Persian as he gets older, it's not necessarily the case. I can even speak for myself. Um, maybe people find this hard to believe because if you speak to me in Farsi now, you see that I'm not so good or in Persian, I'm not so good. But I learned Persian first and I learned English from TV, like Sesame Street and those kinds of shows. And now as an adult, I can understand Persian quite well, but I don't speak it so well. Um, So, you know, it's not that I want you to think this is a plan that's going to make sure he learns Persian. And I wouldn't want you to even focus on that too much. It's not necessarily bad for him to know another language, but we don't want to put that 
uh, pressure because what a lot of times happens is once he starts to learn English and if he's at school and everyone's speaking English, he might not want to speak Persian anymore. Even you sometimes see kids, they go through a period where they won't even answer you if you speak to them in Persian because they only want to speak English. So we have to be ready that he can be okay, but I want you to see how he's doing because speaking English is going to help him be successful in his life in Canada right now, right? That's going to be more important for him than knowing Persian. So we don't want to hold him back either. And kids, yes, they can learn two languages, so he can do that. And there's even some research showing that it can be beneficial and things like creativity or being able to see things from different ways because they have those two languages. So I'm not saying it's bad for him to, to know the Persian, but I wouldn't be so inflexible on insisting that he has to only speak Persian to you if he soon wants to speak English to you guys or wants to practice that. I would okay. try not to be too inflexible. Sure. Um, thank you so much for sure, that. Sure. I would like to uh, also ask my second question. Mm -hmm. want to know, doctor, that um, um, at what age it is better for parents to, to talk to their children about their private parts? Uh, private parts, yes. Mm -hmm. Well, so you know. Do you think uh, at what age? Um, first of all, I want to know at what age children understand that mm -hmm. specific part, their bodies, mm -hmm. and then at what age we should start to talking to them? Yeah, well, you know, when you say understand, um, understand means different things at different ages you know so your your son is not going to understand and shouldn't understand yet sex and sexual relationship or any of those things which is part of that part of his body but he understands that as part of his body that does something because he goes to the bathroom and he understands that and he can also start to learn that that's a more um, private part of his body that he you know, not everyone sees or gets to see because everyone has them and keeps them to themselves. And I'm actually in favor of at a very young age, even three you can, but they might not get it so well. You can already start to get them, talk to them about their body and how they are allowed to um, say what they like and don't like to be done to their body, even if it means hugs or kisses or being touched. And that there are certain parts of their body, and this is where you can talk about those parts, that no one else should see or touch except for, you can say like mom or dad, or if we go to the doctor, maybe and the doctor has to check something. But you let them let him know that there are parts of his body that are private or different. Now, you don't make them something he should be ashamed of, or you don't make it something scary or a big deal, like this is so special or this kind of a thing. But you say this is part of your body that everyone keeps to themselves or we keep to ourselves. And if you ever don't like the way someone is touching you in any way, you let us know. And also this is where parents, and especially with Persian parents, this comes up a lot. The idea of hugging or kissing your kids when they don't want you to hug or kiss them, I think is a very bad thing. Or telling them they have to hug or kiss friends or family members because their friends or family members sends them the wrong message. So I know you asked specifically about the private parts, but this brings up this idea of the conversations parents should have with their kids about their bodies and appropriate and inappropriate touching yeah. and letting them know very clearly that if you don't like the way someone touches you or if you don't want to touch someone or hug or kiss someone, you always have that right to say no. And even as parents, you have to respect that. 
I know sometimes parents jokingly will say, well, it's my kid. I want to hug or kiss them whenever I want to hug or kiss them. And I can get that. I love kids and, you know, I can understand they're so cute. You want to hug or kiss them uh, when you maybe feel like it. But we want to show them from a very young age that they have that right to say no, that they can say, you know what? I don't like to be hugged right now or the way you hugged me was too tight or right now I don't feel like a kiss or right now I don't feel like that or I don't want to hug grandma or I don't want to hug Amu so-and-so or whatever it is. We're allowed to say no to those things and we show them it's okay. And also we let them know that if ever someone has a friendship with them or relationship, a grown-up or something, and they they tell them that they can't tell us, they always can tell us. Okay. And the reason why I say this, and I'm talking to you and, of course, all the parents listening, because unfortunately one of the things that ch- people do who do assault children in this way is they say, this has to be our secret, or if you tell me, I'll kill you or kill your parents or horrible things like that. And you let them know that no matter what, you can always tell mommy or daddy about something. If you don't like something that is going on or someone is doing something, you always can tell us. You don't have to keep that secret from us. We can always know. So to me, it's, it could be part of a bigger conversation that includes these things. Um, but we want to make sure when we talk about these types of you know, issues like the, what we call the private parts, that we don't make it something really scary or too intense for the kid. We let them understand this is part of their body, that, you know, it's it's important for them to just be aware of that they have and other people have, but they, everyone does keep it to themselves and they don't show it to other people. But then also in this bigger conversation of touch and things that they're allowed to make that decision for themselves, that they can always say no. Awesome. Thank you, doctor. Sure. Uh, do I look, doctor, if, uh, do I have a time? I yes, yes, go ahead. Question. Yeah, absolutely. Doctor, um, I I remember you were talking about um, dating, so I would like to just change the topic and go back to dating. Okay, if your three-year-old wants a date, it's too soon. We have to wait a little bit for (laughs) Just kidding. No, (laughs) No, I know. Go ahead. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Um, You you mentioned that, um, you know, some people just judge based on um, their appearance, Mm -hmm. how Mm -hmm. the person looks like. Okay. Yeah. But uh, when I remember when I was dating, I mostly concentrate on the person's voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the voice was very important for me. Sure. Yeah. First it, the voice mm-hmm. and then the height, mm-hmm. even not not the face. Do you mm-hmm. think something is wrong with me, or maybe? <laughs> well, I, I rarely will tell someone like with that kind of question that something has to be wrong with them. Um, you know, voice can be important. It, it can tend to be even more important for women than men, but it can be important for both. Uh, and height, sometimes there's a, a specific physical characteristic that can be important for people. It doesn't necessarily mean something is wrong. Sometimes we can try to understand where that might come from if there's something, but it doesn't have to be anything wrong with you or something bad happened to you. It could be that something that does, it's very attractive to you when it's good, and maybe when it's not so good, it can be a turnoff Sorry for you. Sorry for interruption. No, um, sir. I, because I, when I was going to school, and mm-hmm. I was, when I was talking to my classmates, most people uh, judging their, you know, their partners based on their uh, face, appearances. Mm-hmm. So I was different. I was hmm. different. And I was telling them, no, just don't judge them just on face. So uh, listen to their voice also, you know. So, well, you do know, you feel, let me know. I was thinking, I'm thinking of, in my privately 
why I'm like thinking in that way because faith also is important, you know, weight, education, personality also is important for me. Okay. But the first thing is very the voice is very important for me. Well, and, and other things. yeah, and some people have that like a first thing they notice. A first thing I notice is the person's eyes or their smile or you know, yeah. you can have those. Again, sometimes it could we can look into your history and see if there's something related to that, but I wouldn't necessarily especially you're married, so I hope you're not looking so much anymore, right? You're you're with your wife and have the kid. You you're married to your wife, right? Yeah, so we don't have to worry about you looking anymore. But um, in general, just trying to understand yourself, sometimes there are things some people say, there's a certain part of the leg that's very important for me, or the eyes, or something that they can feel. Like you said, voice can be important for them. So it doesn't necessarily have to be that something is wrong. And this is where, when we look at attraction and we look at preference, it is up to the person. So I know you were saying you would tell your friends you should look hear their voice or you should focus on the voice. But if they don't care about the voice, they don't care about the voice. And if you don't care so much about something else, you don't have to care about it. You know, attraction is a personal thing. It's just like me telling you, no, no, you have to like this type of food. This type of food tastes better. You should like the sour parts of food. You say, no, I don't like sour. That's, That's right. up to you. I, so I was trying. I was at that time. I was trying to find out why most people, you know, concentrating on something else, and I'm kind of different. Yeah. So I was thinking maybe. I would like to share it with you, so I'm glad today I can share it. And I would like to mention something also about my mar- my marriage. Okay. I remember when I was going to meet, meet her, so I usually um, try to make a topic and let her to, let. I was letting her to speak and I was listening mostly. Mm-hmm. Was it because you wanted to hear her voice or you wanted yeah, to hear what yeah, she had to yeah, say? I just wanted, oh, I just okay. wanted to find out how she is speaking. <laughs> Okay. How did she how did she, how did she express herself? Yeah. And also how's her you know tone. Her voice. Yeah, so okay, so also how she expresses herself. And the thing is, you know, to be honest, even like voice, everyone does care about voice. Okay. And people will care different amounts of different to different things. Now you're saying for you voice is very important, but you even said you care about face and other things too. But voice is something that you really pay attention to. It could also be that you have a strong sensitivity to voice that if they have certain types of voices, you're going to be really turned off by that. So it's very important for you to first hear the voice to see if it's going to make you feel that way. So a lot of times when we look at attraction, even though a lot of it is looking at who we are attracted to, a lot of times we're also saying no to a lot of people first and finding the ones we could be attracted to in a way. So... For you, maybe it's also a factor that makes it very easy for you to say no to someone is that if their voice is a certain way for you, it's an automatic no. So you know you have to hear the voice to know if even it's possible for you to like this person. And maybe on top of that, some voices you're very attracted to and make you feel more attracted to them. Um, So it doesn't to me necessarily mean something has to be wrong. People are going to have different things that matter to them. Some people say, for me, the face is very important. Someone else says the body is very important for me. For someone else, this part of the body. For this person, that. So it doesn't have to necessarily mean something is right or wrong about that. It's that we try to understand what we're attracted to and we find someone who has those qualities. But again, you, it's not that you're attracted to something and not attracted to everything else. You're saying your preference or how you rank things, the priority is that voice is more important than other things and you think that voice is more important to you than it is to other men that you know which might be the case 
But if you found a partner you feel attracted to, then that's great. That's all that really matters at the end yeah. is that you feel attracted to your partner. I did my own research <laughs> when I was 18 years old, uh -huh. 15 even years old, 21 years old, going to university, graduating, going to interview. So, you know, I, so I remember when I was going to interview job, so the person who was interviewing me, so she, she you know, I didn't like her voice, <laughs> you know, so I didn't even continue to interview. So I know it is not logic. <laughs> well, maybe the part that's interesting is, and this is why I think it doesn't just go back to you being attracted to the voices. It's that certain voices really bother you, it sounds like. Because, you know, if you're going to work somewhere, you don't have to be attracted to the person. You know, you're just going to be working with them. But it seems like if the voice was so irritating to you, you couldn't even handle it to want to work with that person. So that's why I think it's not just about you being so attracted to certain voices, but that some voices can turn you off so much and bother you so much that you have to make sure the person doesn't have that voice because you can't tolerate that's certain right, voices. Right. So it's to me, it's almost more of a dislike of certain things than actually a strong like, if that makes sense. Okay, okay. Does that make sense? Does that seem to make sense for you? I mean, I'm talking about your preference, but that's how I'm hearing what you're saying. That's right, yeah. So my preference is voice. Well, no, but not just your preference, but that some voices are so intolerable for you. Because, again, if you're going to a job interview, it doesn't matter if you don't think the woman is beautiful if you're working at a place. But I think it would bother you so much to maybe keep hearing that voice that you couldn't even tolerate the interview that you said, I can't work here. So, that's right. Yeah. yeah. No, especially in the workplace, mm -hmm. we, don't use, we don't very often look at, look at the person, right? So, but we can automatically hear the person. Sure. But, yeah, so, yeah, so I think you're, you have a, you know, so again, you have a strong attraction, but also strong sensitivity to voice and maybe even sounds. I don't know if you have that in general. Are you sensitive to other sounds and things? Let's say certain types of music or if there's a sound. No, I'm not. I'm just sensitive to, you know, voice. Female, female voice. And it's female voice, so the male voice doesn't. Male voice is very important, but because I want to, you know, sometimes, you know, I'm kind of enjoying of the beautiful voice. Uh -huh. Yeah. So, I, so voice, again, seems like it's something very important to you in general, and especially yeah. when it comes to attraction. But again, I think, especially if it's a voice you don't like, it really bothers you to the point where you have to make sure the person doesn't have that voice that's really going to bother you uh, to even go forward, whether it's even to work with them. But especially when it came to attraction, you want to make sure you felt good. And voice is something yeah. that maybe sometimes is overlooked, but a lot of people will say it. I tend to hear it more... Females will say it than males, but men have that feeling too. They both can have that attraction to the voice, can be very important. So you're saying that females usually pay attention more on voice, prefer to men? Not all. I mean, sometimes the, like a strength of the voice for a woman can be very important, how they sound. But for both, it can be very important. So it's not something, even if I say that, and that's not something I know for a fact... So don't take that as meaning you shouldn't care about voice. I don't actually know for sure. Um, both people can care a lot about that. There's a feeling of comfort we get when we talk to someone. It could be attractive to us or not attractive to us. So don't worry too much about should you feel this or not. You know, okay. you're not doing anything hurting yourself or anyone else or anything bad happening. I don't think there's anything for you to figure out. Just like if you like certain types of food, we don't have to figure out why you like sushi more than italian food you prefer sushi that's fine right. you know so right. this is your preference and again for me what's important is that you found a partner that 
has those characteristics that you feel attracted to because we need to have that. And if you have that, then great. You don't have to worry about that anymore because you don't have to look anymore anyway. Right. <laughs> thank you so much, Sure, Dr. my I'm pleasure. Very enjoyed. Oh, I, thank you. I, I enjoyed I talking to you. Today. Oh, good. Bye. Thank you. I enjoyed talking to you. Have a great day. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Okay, going into our last commercial break, you're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You know, with the last caller, he brought up a topic that uh, I try to talk about every so often because I think it is so important for parents to hear. And that is having conversations with your kid about childhood sexual abuse. Now, you don't have to use those words and you don't have to present it in that way that that's why you're talking to them. But from a very young age, it's important to teach our kids about things related to boundaries and that when it comes to their body, they're the person who gets to decide what does and doesn't happen to their body. And we show that to them too. So we can have these talks, but also the way we respond to them is very important. So again, even if you're the mom or the dad and you say, I want to kiss my kid or hug my kid or pick them up, but they say no, how you respond to that is very important in teaching them what it means to say yes and no, and that they have a right to say yes or no. So much better, better they learn it with you than they don't realize it in, in some other situation. They aren't able to say no, or they don't realize they have the right to say no. Now, parents in general, but especially I see this with Iranian parents or a lot of parents who think that if you don't talk about something, it doesn't exist. And so uh, we are very good at being in denial or thinking that, you know what, if I never bring up drugs or alcohol, my kid will never think it's okay to you know, use drugs or alcohol. Or if I never talk about sex, they'll never think about sex or bring up sex. But if I talk about it, then it becomes more real or in some way I'm telling them it's okay. But especially sometimes we feel like if I just talk about it, it makes it more real. So when it comes to sexual abuse, which I understand is a horrible thing, and my goal in having this conversation isn't to scare parents to think that they should be uh, you know, paranoid of every person they see is going to touch their kid in some way. But we have to be realistic and realize these things do happen. Uh, you'd be shocked at the number of kids who, if you're now looking at adults, but people who have been sexually abused in some way as a child. It is really very sad. And most people you who have had that happen to them, they won't tell you, so you don't know. But definitely someone you know and maybe even you yourself has been affected in this way. So we have to be aware that this is a real thing. So of course we have to be aware of our kids and who they are around, and even family members. I know we can think, well, it's your the uncle, so there should be no worries. But unfortunately we know that sometimes it is uncles or family members who are the people who are doing these horrible things. And so it's not that we're paranoid of each person, but we make certain rules. That, for example, we won't leave our kid alone with one adult at any time, especially one male adult, no matter what. We'll always make sure it's, let's say, if it's the uncle, they're with their wife or girlfriend or some other person. Or we're going to be aware of what where we leave our kid in different ways. So it's not about being paranoid, but about coming up with certain rules and let the people know this is just our rule. It's not about them personally that you're saying you think they're going to do this, but this is just a rule we have for our kid. But coming back to talking to your kids about it, 
the idea that if you talk about something, it becomes more real or more likely to happen almost always is not going to be the case. What you're trying to do is talk to your kids so that you prepare them because you're not going to be with them every minute of every day. And as they get older, less and less, you're going to be with them every moment and everything that's going on. You want to best prepare them to deal with what they might face. Hopefully they'll never be in a situation where anything you're talking to them about will be an issue, but we know it is possible. So you let them know things about, yes, you don't talk to adult strangers or go with them somewhere. Even if they tell you they know me or they know mom and dad, you don't listen to them unless you know you're with us or we tell you who they, you go with or it's a family member or something. You definitely let them know things like that. But again, coming back to their body, it's very important to have these conversations about one, if you ever don't like how someone is touching you, even if it's family member, you can let us know. Uh, again, I'm very big on this idea, you know, Persians will have their kids show up at a dinner party and say, you have to hug and kiss everyone there and say hi to everyone. No, they don't have to, especially the touching part. They don't have to, but even the saying hello to every single person, we don't have to make them do that. And even if it's a family member and they come and they haven't met you or they haven't seen them for three years or they love them or whatever, they don't have to go hug and kiss them if they don't want to. It's their body. They're allowed to say yes or no to any kind of touching, no matter who it is, no matter how much you think it's okay. And again, even with you, because I see so many parents who see their kids and they think their kid is so cute and they just want to kiss them a million times, even if the kid says stop or ow or I don't like it, they still think I'm going to kiss you as much as I want because I love you. And also in some ways, because I almost own you, sometimes parents think, well, you're my kid. I can do with you whatever I want which is not true to me at all and not okay, but don't give them that, that message at all. But also have the conversations with them that when it comes to things like changing them, now if they go to daycare, maybe they do change them at the daycare. So you let them, you want to make sure you're aware of what's going on in their life and who are the adults that interact with them in different ways, but you let them know that people, there's certain parts of your body that no one touches or only we touch if you're cleaning it and no one else is going to touch no matter what. Or if someone asks you to touch them, you don't have to ever touch them in a way you don't like or you don't know. Or parts of you that you don't want someone to touch, you don't have to ever let them do that. And especially if they ever tell you not to tell anyone, you can always tell us what's going on for you or who you met or who you're interacting with or what's going on. And also you want to pay attention um, to your kids and how they're acting after they come back from certain places. And very importantly for me, is if your kid ever says someone touched me in a way or something happened that I didn't quite understand, always take that seriously. This is another place where denial comes into play because we don't want to accept, or we don't want to even think that something has happened to our kid. We want, we'd rather deny it. We'd rather pretend it never happened. So the countless stories I've heard it's heartbreaking of someone saying, I finally told my mom or I told my dad that I was touched in some way or some family member touched me or something happened. And the family responded by saying either you're making it up or you're lying or no, that never happened. Or maybe you misunderstood. It's your uncle. He was just touching you in a way because he loves you. He was hugging you and maybe you thought it was bad or accusing them of just being a bad person or you tried to create conflict in our home, so many things, but so many ways of denying the person who is opening up, which is very difficult for people to do, whether they're kids or adults, but somehow denying what they're saying as being valid 
and totally dismissing what they're saying. Take it seriously. If your kid says, I don't know, something happened, this grown-up touched me in some way, or this happened, or uncle or aunt or someone touched me in a way I didn't like, I'm not saying you have to call the police immediately, but I'm saying talk to them about it. Ask them what happened. Investigate it a little bit further. Even if it means having that very uncomfortable conversation of talking to that adult they're talking about. I get it. It's Maybe it's your brother or your cousin or someone, and you think, oh my gosh, how am I supposed to ask them about this? But we don't want to deny something so, so important and significant because the costs are so high. So as a parent, you have to face a lot of things that aren't easy to face. I understand it's so scary to imagine something like that happening to your kid, and I don't blame you for not wanting to have that conversation. But we don't want to deny or deny a truth that might be there, that might be the most harmful thing that can happen to your kid. And on top of that, tell your kid you don't believe them when they're sharing something so difficult. That pain that they people experience when first they've been let's say, molested or assaulted in that way. But the pain of then not being believed by the people that were supposed to protect you is very, very painful. It could make it very hard for them to feel like they can trust or feel comfortable with anyone. If my parents who were supposed to protect me, first of all, they didn't protect me from this happening. Sometimes you can't, but even afterwards when I tried to get help from them, tried to get their support, they still didn't believe it. It's very, very hurtful. So these conversations are difficult to have, but we need to start having them with kids from a young age. And if your kids come forward and tell you that they've been touched in some way or something happened and they're not even sure about it, because a lot of times kids don't understand what's going on in these cases, we want to make sure we take it seriously and that we have a conversation with them. We don't just ignore or deny it because that's the easier thing to do in the moment. All right, we've reached the end of today's show. Thank you to the callers and the listeners and to Ghazaleh here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful day.